warm welcoming here this morning, body. Thanks for singing like my favorite song this morning, worship team. Where are you guys? I mean, just thinking of Revelation chapter 5 and 4, where, where right now in heaven, that, that text is saying that there is a throne, and around that throne, there are thousands of angels falling down before the throne. And there are tribes and tongue and, and peoples from every tribe and nation that are coming together to worship Him, people who have gone to heaven already. And that scene in Revelation 4 and 5 is happening right now. Um, thank you too, body, for giving us that opportunity to be able to go and to be a part of God's plan for those tribes and tongues and nations being able to be in heaven someday. Grateful for you sending us out, uh, that we can be ministering in Europe, that we can be ministering in different parts of the world, uh, to be able to share the gospel, to be able to, to, to train uh, gospel workers in different places. So thank you for encouraging us, praying for us. Thanks for uh, providing your financial help that helps us to do that. Um, uh, this isn't what the, uh, the sermon is about today, but just you might want to go back in that Revelation 4 and 5 and just notice that the prayers or that the incense that those angels have around the throne is actually the prayers of the saints. And so, as you pray, friends, those prayers are going up into the throne room and they are worshiping God, they are asking God, they are seeking God. And so, your pray, prayers availeth much. They, they make it into the very throne room of God, Revelation chapter 5. But that's not what I'm preaching about today. Um, I have the opportunity to, to share with you uh, God's Word this morning, and, and Jeremy and has been leading you all through the, the book of Acts, uh, looking at the importance of how the Holy Spirit working through believers, preaching the gospel in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're just getting a history lesson of how God is working through His believers back in the time of the church. But as I've been watching and seeing some, some of your messages online, how God is doing that right now. And so I have opportunity this morning to look at a certain section of Scripture and to be able to see uh, where the Holy Spirit continues to work through His believers, specifically with Paul. Um, I want to start off my message this way. Uh, Ed Stetzer, many of you may either hear his podcasts or read, but he is a, uh, a leader in, in uh, evangelism. He's the leader of a, an association, the Billy Graham Association for Church Multiplication. And Ed Stetzer wrote in the USA Today back in, 19, uh, in 2015, uh, he wrote that the numbers of Believers are not going down, but the numbers uh, of unbelievers, or he would call them nuns, is actually going up. And so, sometimes as believers, we, we decry, oh, we're losing a voice in our society. We're losing a sense of, of our impact in the society. And what Stetzer is telling us is that statistically, the number of actual evangelical believers is not necessarily going down. But the impact of immigration, the impact of people growing up in a society where they don't see the revel, uh, relevance of Christ, the relevance of His church, that number is going. And so, we have a sense that, oh, we're losing traction in our society. 
too often what our response is, is, woe is us. We need to have some sort of uh, impact. Once again, we need to become a Christian country. And, and what uh, I think the impact, the significance of what Stetzer is telling us is that our import as Christians is remembering who we are, who Christ has called us to be as His church at this time, and then living that out. Um, the significance is that in the past, Christians may have enjoyed a majority among those people who agree with us, agree with us in the ideas of marriage, in, uh, in children, in, in what is the importance of mankind, what is the importance of work. While we may have had agreement with the society for the most part in the past, that agreement is decreasing. And now we have more people who, although they may not be adversely against us, against Christianity and its values, they just may say, you know what, there's other stories. There's other ways of seeing how man was created. What is the value of man? How does a marriage put together? And, and how, what is the definition of a marriage? Now, granted, there are some people who are definitely against and take stances against Christian worldviews. But we have both. Friends, my, my message today is that I have the opportunity to look at Paul. Paul, as he had opportunities to, to share his testimony, to preach the gospel before very uh, uh, difficult crowds, a crowd of an angry mob of religious zealots, as well as a crowd of religious leaders, and to see how he shared his testimony, how he attempted to engage the people to be able to not compromise, but to tell the story. And I'll tell you the end of the story a little bit, as well as to realize he fails. Because as we look in the text, we're going to see how he has to be saved by the civil authorities to come so they don't, the crowd doesn't rip him apart. Friends, this is where we're going today. I, my desire is that we grow in our understanding and our practice of remembering and putting into practice who Jesus has said who we are in a world that he said is not going to like his values. It's not going to like his people. But he still says, you are there for a reason. I have put you in this world, even though you are not of this world, and I have made you for this world. We'll take a moment to, to look at Paul's experience with those two crowds. Then we'll pivot a little bit to look at how Jesus prays for his disciples. Because during this text, we'll see how Jesus actually meets with Paul and encourages him. And then we'll finish today with looking at what are some of our responses to what we might call a cancel culture or a culture which is sometimes aggressively or sometimes just passively against the values of Christ or the values that we think are so important. So here we go. Let's look first at, uh, I think this is working, at some of observations from Acts 22. And, and friends, uh, uh, when Jeremy shared this text, it's like, okay, this is going to be a challenge because we're not going to be able to read the whole text, but I, I hope we're going to be able to look at some key themes that Paul faced in his reacting, in his engaging with the cancel culture that he had around them. And so in chapter 22, 
Paul gives his testimony to the angry crowd. If you were to have read that text in chapter 22 and 23, you would see that Paul was arrested. And then he asked, can I speak to this crowd? And as he begins speaking, he speaks in the very language that these people understand in Aramaic. And the text says that they became very quiet because he began speaking in a language that they understood. Very important that as he engages the people, he's not using flowerful language or language that they, it's, it's, they don't understand, but they, it's applicable to them. It's not using jargon, but it's something that appeals to them. He expresses the same key values that the crowd had. In fact, he goes on and tells a story, look, I was very much a persecutor of Christians. I went about uh, asking city councils to give me permission to take them captive and to put them into jail. And so he's telling his testimony to this very angry crowd and, and telling them, look, I was very much just like you. But then what happened is that Jesus appeared to me. He changed my life. He shared of his authenticity of just, I made mistakes. I was going about seeking, thinking that I was doing the right thing in God's sight, but then Jesus re- uh, revealed to me I was going the wrong direction. He's sharing this all with the crowd. And then as soon as he said this, he says, and then Jesus told him, Paul, I will send you to go to the Gentiles. And in verse 21, the text tells us, immediately the crowd listened until he said this, and then they cried out, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live, in verse 22. And then what happened is that Paul had to be rescued a second time by the Roman guard. And so here we have Paul attempting to try to give his testimony, ends up kind of a failure and ends up almost being needing to be rescued by the civil authorities. Chapter 23, Paul gives his testimony to the religious leaders. Paul is, is speaking, he, the, the Roman commander says, I really need to get to the foundation of what's going on. So this crowd is about ready to tear you apart, Paul. And so I just want these religious leaders and you to be able to, to have a, uh, a discussion so then I can help understand what's going on. Um, that meeting gets off with kind of a bad start. If you've read the text, as soon as Paul starts talking, he's saying, look, I have a clear conscience as I'm speaking to you. And just moments later, one of the uh, religious guards hauls off and punches him in the mouth. And he says, what is going on? You people of all people who are people of the Torah, of the Scripture, know that a man should not be punished before he's even been judged. And then he goes on to tell his story to these religious officials and yet realizes that he's not getting anywhere with these people. And so he cries out to them, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 6. Now, that was a very strategic word, uh, sentence that he said, is because he knew before him were a group of religious officials who were made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So let me just give you a little why, why that's so important. Pharisees, we would say, as you know, uh, the Pharisees were strong supporters of Scripture of reading Scripture, memorizing Scripture, putting it in their heart. Uh, These were people who taught other people. Um, Jesus said, you will travel over hill and dale and far in order to make a convert. 
So these were very committed people to Scripture. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were people who we might describe as our liberal theologians. Sadducees of that day were people who uh, didn't necessarily, well, they didn't believe in spiritual things. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in a life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so Paul knew that if he could make very clear what it was that was important to him, the resurrection of a man, Jesus, who has come back to life and who's changing the lives of people, he knew that he could gain a hearing probably with some of those people. And that's what happened. But then as the crowd, as they went on, that crowd again turns against him. And, and uh, the Roman uh, commander a third time has to drag Paul off and ship him off to a place that's safe because he would have been torn apart. Later on in verse 23, this group of religious zealots gather together and they say, we are not going to eat or drink until we're able to assassinate Paul. Long story short, Paul hears of that assassination attempt from his nephew. He takes that nephew and he says, look, tell the centurion of what you have heard. The centurion goes to the commander, the commander then finds out. And so Paul, again, has to rely upon his community, the civil officials, in order to save him so that he's not assassinated. He ends up being uh, delivered to uh, another king, another governor, and has to spend two years in that location. Two years. Jesus appears to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11. And it says, the text tells us, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem just now, so you must also testify in Rome. Just sit, think for a moment. Paul, sitting in the guard, guard room, he's thinking of his time with having tried to address the religious crowd. Didn't turn out so well. Of trying to address the religious crowd, ends up getting punched in the mouth and then almost torn to pieces except for the, the, the protection of the civil authorities. And Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, take courage. I am with you. In the same way that you testified about me, Paul, with your courageous voice, I'm going to send you to Rome. Giving, giving Paul almost an encouragement, okay, I, I think I know how this is going to end. I'm going to be going to Rome. But also, he didn't know the timeline because as we can read in the text, he waited there two more years, actually, before he had an opportunity to go on to Rome. Okay, friends, those are some observations. I, I hope you're catching some themes here of Paul interacting with a, a culture around him that does not want to hear the values and the message that he has. He attempts to speak truth. He tries to do it strategically. He attempts to speak in a way of words using, uh, using words that they understand. And yet he still ends up feeling like, this is just a failure. Where am I going? Friends, I want to I pivot and just turn just a little bit and move away from this text. And as I was studying this this past week, I, uh, it just appeared to me so important of that appearance of Jesus to Paul in his cell or, or under guard 
where he says, take courage in the same way that you testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. You see, this wasn't the first time that Paul had met the living Lord Jesus. We can read in chapters back, and I think Jeremy uh, has, has reviewed some places where Paul and his traveling band had met Jesus, going back to the very first time that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so, friends, what I want to do, I want to turn to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, I'll be reading a text in which Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's also praying for his future disciples. Now, follow this. The reason I'm, I'm doing that is that the very Jesus who prayed in the garden for his disciples, the Bible tells us is the same Jesus who's praying for his church while he is in heaven. Jesus, the book of uh, Hebrews tells us that Jesus intercedes and prays for believers today. And so what I'm wanting, to, wanting you to see is that the very prayer that, that Jesus prayed for his disciples, he's praying for Paul, he's praying for us as well. And I just want to go a little bit in depth into that passage of John chapter 17 and to look at how Jesus prayed for us believers today. And so reading from from John chapter 17, make sure I got this right here. Starting in verse 11. Jesus is praying, and and as He's speaking to the Father, He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, the disciples, are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Holy Father, protect them by the power of Your name, the name that You gave Me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Friends, I want us to see the significance of how Jesus prayed for his disciples, how Jesus is still praying for us in heaven. Even as the, the book of Hebrews makes so clearly that we have a priest a high priest who goes directly to the Father and prays for his people. There's three, three key areas that I, I want us to see of how he prays, us, uh, prays for us, how we are to be thinking of ourselves as we engage a culture, thinking of ourselves as we, as we plan as a community to engage the culture around us. Three 
identities, three elements of who we are as, as Christians wherever we are in whatever job, whatever place that we are. And he says, in short, he prays for his followers to be in the world, not of the world, and for the world. As Jesus prays in, in verse 15, he says that my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. There's a fancy word that says that when Jesus came to earth, he was incarnated, literally in the flesh. And so Jesus came into the world in order to be able to take on the sins of mankind. He says that my people will be in the world, incarnated representatives of him around the world. Let me just back up a moment. The, the, world, uh, the word for world, uh, we just need to have a kind of an understanding of that. In the, in the book of John, uh, the word for world is sometimes used as the globe, the places that where people, uh, you know, place their feet. It's, it's, the, it's the created order. But most of the time, that he uses the word world, and especially in this context, the world means those who are against God and the systems who are against God. Very famous verse, most of you know it, John 3.16. For God so loved the people who were against him and the systems against him. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But friends, don't forget verses 17 and 18, because that goes on and, and further explains what that means. He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Friends, this word for world is, is, not, is not necessarily the big bad thing that we need to avoid. Rather, as John uses this word for world, he's saying it is made up of the people who are against him, who are chosen against him, and the systems that they live in, the societies that they live in, that are against him. And yet, God so loved the world, that system, that he sent his son. I think that's important as we understand that the word, especially for world, is not necessarily something that we avoid, but even as God is, uh, Jesus is praying for his disciples, that we, that I have put you in this world. Secondly, we are not only in the world, he says that we are not of the world. In verses 14 and 16, the world has hated them, Jesus prays, but they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Here Jesus describes that even as Jesus, as he belongs to the Father, connected to the Father, his disciples are connected to the Father. Meaning they are not connected to this world. They are separate from, they are different from the world, that system and those people who are against him. Jesus prays that his disciples would not be of. That, 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 not, that, that sense of not being of the world comes as we become followers of Jesus. 
as we move from, Paul says, a world of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the one that he loves. There is a definite transition in the New Testament of somebody who moves from death to life, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not merely an attending of church. It's not merely a being a baptized. It's not being membership. Paul and the rest of the New Testament tells us that we move from being of the world to not of the world because of Christ's work in our life to make us born again, to bring new life into us. Jesus prays that we would not be of the world. And then in verse 17 for 19, Jesus prays for his disciples that they would be for the world. Jesus says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus prayed that his people would be like him. That even as Jesus loves the world, his followers would love the world. And I hope you're following me in that way. Yeah, I hope you're, you're catching the importance because there's often a, a response in, in our communities and our groups that the world is everything that's bad and needs to be run away from. Well, the first part of that statement is true. The world is against God and all of the systems are against God. But it's interesting that He prays for us and continues to pray for us rather than being separate or, or shying away or moving away. He says, friends, my, my friends, you are in. You are not of, but you are for the world. Okay, I'm going to have you uh, just, just do a little mental exercise with me. Um, think of those, those three spheres that Jesus prays for us in, that we are in the world, we are not of the world, but we are for the world, okay? And imagine those circles kind of, kind of overlapping. And that's who Jesus says that we are. We are, we have that identity, we have that mission to be going in, to not be of, to be for the world. Okay, now just imagine with me, what if you were to take one of those away? What happens? Okay. Um, what if we were to be in the world, but not of the world? And so I've just left off that sphere of being for the world. I would call that person more of a critical separatist. It's somebody who realizes that, yes, I am in the world, I'm not of the world, I have this relationship with God, but I've lost this dimension that Jesus said, oh friend, you are for the world. I have sent you to be to and to be declaring the praises of who I am, to being works of service. And if I miss out on that for aspect, I become merely someone who just sits off to the side and is able to say, huh, I know everything I'm against, I know, uh, I know what I'm against, but I'm not sure what I'm for in this world. Or take those three dimensions again and drop off the, um, the not of. And so somebody who says that, well, I'm in the world and I'm for the world, but I lose track of not of the world. And then I quickly, I become, I, I call that person somebody who's just a religious chameleon. Yes, I know about God. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm in the world. 
I'm, I'm, uh, I'm for the world, but I'm not sure what I stand for. And, and so the social pressures that come my way, there's no foundation of being separate from, different from the world. And so the, the best ideas about marriage, the best ideas about family, I think, well, those aren't, those aren't bad, and a lot of people believe those, and so why don't we just move ahead to, towards those, not realizing that that not-ofness is something that Jesus said, oh, that's what connects you to the Father. That's what connects you to my Word. And so as we forget that not-ofness, we become merely a religious chameleon. Or what if we were to remember the not-of-the-world, the for-the-world, but we forget that we're in the world. I call that somebody who's a religious dreamer. It's somebody whose feet are f- planted very firmly, a hundred feet in the air. It's hoping for good things to happen in their world around them because they are not of the world. I am for the world. But you know what? I'm not going to get mixed up in all that stuff because that's just messy. And so I'm just happy to kind of sit on the sidelines of my being with Jesus and, and, uh, and for, yes, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say that I'm for these things, but what am I doing personally to have an active part playing out my mission of who God has called me to be? Friends, what, I, what I'm hoping that you're catching here is Paul's playing out this inness, not ofness, and forness, as he is responding to this culture, uh, this cancel culture around him. Um, that even as Jesus comes and, and encourages him, Jesus is praying for him to be, Paul, I have sent you to these people. I know that you are mine, you belong to me. I know that you are to be for these people. And so you see Paul doing all that he can to preach in a way that's going to gain their attention. And yet at that moment, we're, we're kind of like, I'm not sure that worked out so well. Paul, and Paul later on even says himself, I may have failed in that, in those attempts. Friends, those are, those are important concepts of identity. And then how do we work this out in a culture that's very different from us? Being in, not of, and for the world. Let me move back now to our text and help us to to see how did Paul engage? What are some suggestions for how we might engage in the cancel culture around us? Um, I appreciate Kirsten's work with me on the bulletin this week to to put those those responses. I'm going to make one little change, and so you're going to have to to, to rewrite that. Uh, Responses to our world's cancel culture has to do with a certainty of God's presence and a collaboration with our community. A certainty of God's presence and a collaboration with our community. Let me talk first of the certainty of God's presence. We see, again, a very encouraging time where Jesus appeared to Paul and he said, Paul, I am with you. Be encouraged. You preached here in Jerusalem I have a plan for you, and I'm going to send you to Rome so that you can preach again. Paul demonstrated a real hope that his words would have an effect on his listeners, and yet they may not have had the effect that he wanted and intended. You see, Paul's hope was not in the people that they would hear rightly, but rather it was in in Jesus 
calling him to go and to be in the world, to not be of, but to be for. And that's what motivated Paul in this, in this mission that he'd given him. Um, many of you may remember Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was, uh, in the early uh, 1970s, uh, was a, uh, a, uh, an advisor to President Nixon. And if you're old enough to remember, if you like history, you're going to realize that President Nixon was someone who got caught doing something illegal. And because Chuck Colson was one of the key people in those illegal maneuvers, Chuck Colson, who had been a bright and shining star in that cabinet, was thrown into prison for several years. Chuck Colson writes in his, in his memoir, he writes, I thought all that I had tried to accomplish was just done. It was, it was for a waste. And yet, God showed His grace upon Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson came to Christ through the witness of other inmates, through a ministry that was in the prison. And it was through him coming to Christ that he began to see new eyes, or have new eyes for what was going on in prisons, and to start working towards prison reform, to start having opportunities for inmates to actually work towards being rehabilitated rather than just treated like objects within prisons. Um, that ministry you're, you're aware of is, is uh, Prison Fellowship. And today, uh, it's in a thousand different prisons in all 50 states, uh, working with over 365,000 incarcerated men and women each year. In his book, Colson writes this. He says, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. He said that I was an ex-convict. My great humiliation, being sent to prison, was actually the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. Friends, we probably can look back on the times that we have engaged with people who are just maybe against us, either passively or aggressively, people who just don't want to give us the time, and we may say, boy, that was, that was just a waste of my breath. That either didn't go well or... Or just that person didn't have any response. Friends, what I'm, what I'm telling you from this text of Paul, the text of Jesus praying for you, that he promises to be with you. That is your confidence. That's your, your focus that he is with me wherever I am, in my workplace, in my family, wherever he places me. What is to be our engagement with this culture around us? To have that first confidence that Jesus goes with us, the certainty of God's presence. But there's a second response. It's not merely that the confidence that, that God is with us, but there's an active response of collaborating with the community around us. And some of the themes that I referred to in the first part of the message, you notice how Paul at different times appealed to the religious, or I'm sorry, to the civil authorities. He claimed that, look, you can't punish me because I'm a Roman citizen. Um, or he appealed to the commander to protect him. Um, at one point where he was on trial, he said, look, I want my, my case to be heard by a higher court. Um, there was a point where during his assassination attempt where he relied upon his nephew to tell the centurion to go and tell the commander so that his life would be spared. Friends, it's interesting how Paul also collaborated with the people who were around him who saw, he saw that 
He needed the other people around him. Um, kind of a, a silly story, but there's, there's a, uh, we were, were living at our home in, in, in Czech Republic, Zichani, and I remember thinking, ah, you know, my lawnmower is, uh, I got to go out and cut my grass, and my lawnmower blade, I don't know if I'd hit something before, but it was kind of wobbling, and I thought, well, maybe I need to have it uh, kind of filed off. And I thought, well, I don't have a file, I don't have one of those nifty uh, grinders that I can just use, and I thought, what am I going to do? Well, maybe I'll go out and buy a file or I'll buy one of those nifty grinders. And then it was like, God just gave me the idea, Rich, why don't you go ask for help from your neighbor? Your neighbor who is like, has nothing to do with Jesus. And, and that's why I say it's kind of a silly story because I think that was kind of a, just, a, uh, just a lightning bolt for me. Oh, Rich, you are so independent. And you want to be so self-sufficient in trying to work through the simple things of life, I forget that there's a community around me who can be helpful to me. Um, I don't have a, a great story that says, well, in that conversation as I went over to his little shop and asked him to, to fix it, that it turned into a sharing of the gospel and he came to Christ. But I think it was a, a powerful work in me to be, just be more open. Lord, where do I need to grow in my interdependence upon other people in my community. I was, we had a, a meal last night with the, with the elders and the wives, and, and one, of the, one of the cool things that we were just talking about, and I just asked the question, tell me some neat things that are going on in this congregation in the last, in the last few years. And uh, telling stories and very encouraging, and then my wife brought up, and, and is the VBS, the community VBS still going on? And... Uh, and, uh, and they said, yes, we're, we're still working on that, and we're working with different churches in the community. And that, for me, was just a, a huge encouragement of seeing, yes, we stand for the gospel. But there are other people who also stand for the gospel. How do we collaborate? How do we work with other people in our community to share the gospel? I appreciate Valley EFC Church. That's a, that's a whole different church, much larger, different context. But the very value that they have is that, is that they intentionally reach out to people. They, they say that they're seeking to go, do good for the community with the community. Rather than we're seeking to do good for the community all by ourselves, we do good for the community in conjunction, in collaboration with the community of service of compassion, of relationships. This week, uh, just kind of in closing, I, uh, you'll be, some of you, many of you, I'm grateful, will be meeting together in small groups. And some of you will be thinking through some of the, the questions uh, from this sermon. I hope as you're, as you're studying with your group, you're, you're narrowing in on that, oh Lord, what, what does it mean that you are praying for me to be in the world to not be of the world, but to be for the world. What does that look like in my work context with my neighbors? I hope there's a, some good discussion in your small groups that has to do, what steps am I going to take to move in being certain of, that, of God's presence in my life, as well as how do we collaborate better? Um, grateful. Grateful for, for God's work in our lives 
to make us His missional vehicles, to make His missional instruments wherever He places us. Let me close in prayer, please. Oh Lord, we are humbled that You would choose us as what You know to be dust and just very fragile vessels, broken vessels, cracked vessels. And You call us to be in the world. You've called us to be Your your very treasured possession, Your people. And we thank You that You are also the one who sends us into the world, even as Jesus said that He goes into the world that He sends us into this world to be ministering, to be showing compassion, to be reflecting who Jesus is. Father, would you, would you rearrange our thinking of shying away, fearing that which we don't understand or that which just is rubs against us? Lord, would you give us the ability to work through the discomfort of those who really have different ways of thinking. And would you, would you help us to respond with questions, with love, with sincere curiosity to those people who have a different view of life and, and understanding of who you are? Lord, would you move us out of our comfort spots that we would be your, your vessels, your, your people of mercy and grace where you have placed us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.